starting uh, this Sunday and for the next number of months, be working through the life and book of Joshua. And so this morning, beginning with a passage in Exodus 17, if you have your Bibles to turn there. Suppose I were to uh, ask you uh, this morning to write down all the factors that have shaped you into the person you are today. What would you write down? What would be on the list? Perhaps uh, if you're thinking through that question carefully, some of you might write down, I was born in the United States. Think about what huge advantage that is. Think about how different our lives are because we were born here. What if you'd been born in North Korea or in Somalia or Iran or Afghanistan? That shaped us, hasn't it? Did you grow up on the farm or in a rural area or in a city? My wife and I grew up in large metro areas. She in Chicago. I grew up in the Twin Cities area. That shaped us. If you grew up in a, in a rural area, that makes you into the person that you are today. What was your home life like growing up? Was it stable? Was it loving? Was it dysfunctional? Were your parents Christians? What values did they impart to you? All of those things are significant in impacting us, aren't they? What decisions have you made in the past that still impact you today? Decisions regarding education, for example, your vocation, marriage. How have the factors of heredity shaped you? Shall I keep going? I mean, you understand my point, don't you? There are many factors at work in our lives that have profoundly affected our personalities, our values, our outlook, our calling in life. And so it is in our spiritual lives. The question is, if you're a believer this morning, how has God shaped you over the years into the person he's created you to be? What has he put into your life? Good times, tough times, trials, whatever it might be. How has God, if you were to think back over the years, how have you been shaped spiritually into who you are on this Sunday morning? And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this being All Saints Sunday, you think of the great saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament looking at the life of Joshua this morning. How can we serve the Lord as I've entitled the message this morning, in victory and power, making a difference in our world, how can we serve like, for example, Joshua, one of the great saints of old? And so I want to answer that basic question that I introduced this morning. What has gone into your spiritual life to shape you into the person you are today? And I want to help you answer that question more fully over these next number of weeks as we look at the life of Joshua. When we think about Joshua, where do we usually go? Let's see, where's Joshua? Well, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, there it is. Uh, And Joshua, of course, we know him to be a great man of God. We know him to be a dynamic leader. But the story of Joshua doesn't begin with the book of Joshua. 
Because when you turn to Joshua 1.1 and you read the first verse, it says Joshua was 80 years old, so the story picks up when he's already 80. What happened in the first 80 years of his life? What experiences shaped him? What experiences did God bring him through? What did God put into his life to make him that person who was ready then, finally, at the age of 80, to step up and take leadership of the people? What do we know? Well, the first years, the first 40 years of Joshua's life were spent in slavery. We know that. Joshua was born as a slave in Egypt, as all the Israelites were. But that's about all that we know about that early period. We do gather from the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 7 and Numbers chapters 1 and 2 that Joshua was a member of a very prominent and powerful clan of the tribe of Ephraim. And we discover from Scripture that at the time of the Exodus, when the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea safely by the grace of God, that Joshua's grandfather led the tribe of Ephraim across the Red Sea. What impact did Grandpa have, you think, on Joshua's life? He was captain, Numbers tells us, of the tribe of Ephraim. He had under his command, the book of Numbers gives us the actual figure, 40,500 men under his command. And so there, as the people, by faith, under the leadership of Moses, crossed the Red Sea, there at the head of the entire tribe of Ephraim was Grandpa leading the way. Elishama, his name. And along with Elishama was his son, Nun, and his grandson, Joshua. It was the tribe of Ephraim, by the way, that carried Joseph's coffin out of Egypt. Think of the impact of that. A man who died in faith, never seeing the land, never seeing the promise, but believing it was so. And so remember before Joseph died, he said, when the Lord delivers you from Egypt, when he brings you back to the land, take my remains with you when you go back to the land. And so you, can you imagine going through the Red Sea, this magnificent catafalque on which is the mummy case, the gleaming mummy case, Carrying Joseph's remains. There that tribe of Ephraim, Joshua, carrying Joseph through the Red Sea on the way to the Promised Land. How did all of those things impact him? His faith, his outlook. Well, we don't have much of a glimpse the first 40 years of Joshua's life, but then the Bible sets forth seven experiences before we ever get to the book of Joshua. Seven experiences over the next 40 years of Joshua's life that profoundly shaped him. Experiences the Lord brought him through. Times of training, times of teaching, if you will. Preparing him to step into that role of leadership once Moses died. And those seven events are described in the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so over these next weeks, we're going to survey these seven experiences before you ever get to Joshua 1.1. And, and what I want to submit to you is that what Joshua experienced all of his lifetime and the seven experiences that are highlighted there in the wilderness shaped him, equipped him 
into the person God wanted him to be. And I want to also submit that those lessons are essential for each one of us if we would walk with the Lord in power, in victory, making a difference in our time, our place, our world. And so we turn this morning to the first of those seven experiences. It's an event which takes place at Rephidim. And some of you are looking at me saying, where? Okay, it's a place called Rephidim. And I want you to notice the text. Follow as I read it, John, uh, Exodus 17, reading verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it the Lord is my banner. In other words, where did the victory come from? What was our rallying center for victory? It wasn't Joshua out on the field of battle. It's the Lord. The altar he named, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Can we reach the throne of God through prayer? Can we lay hold upon God's mercies? That's what the text says. A hand upon the throne of the Lord, exclamation point in my version. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here's the setting. The Israelites have just crossed the Red Sea. And they find themselves now in the wilderness of Sinai, a rather, obviously, harsh place on the planet. They're in the wilderness. They took food with them from Egypt, but that's running out. So there's a food shortage. And where in this barren wilderness are we ever going to find water? We're all going to perish out here. Well, God provided. You go back just one chapter, Exodus 16. The Lord provides manna from heaven. And we know from the scriptures that that provision of manna was there every day of their sojourn for 40 years. God never failed them. There was always enough to eat during their entire time in the wilderness. But what about water? Well, in the verses literally immediately preceding our text, God says to Moses, you see that rock there? Take that rod, strike the rock with the rod, and there will be abundant supply of water for everybody. And so Moses does that. He strikes the rock, and there is this beautiful, clear, sparkling abundant supply of water in the middle of this barren wilderness, the Amalekites hear about that. 
the Amalekites, a tribal group founded by Amalek, who we discover from the Bible was a grandson of Esau, and they heard that there's this magnificent, talk about a valuable resource. When you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no water, if you can control gushing springs of water like this, you have an invaluable resource. And so the Amalekites want to seize it. So here the people of Israel are. They've just come across the Red Sea. They're all excited and pumped up. There's victory, and then immediately there's their first battle. Isn't that the way it works in life? God brings blessing. There are victories that come. And the next thing we turn around, we're in the middle of a conflict we never intended to be in the middle of. And so there's a conflict. They cross the Red Sea. There are the Amalekites planning to seize that spring of water. And however many they have to slay and kill to get the spring, they're going to do it. And so plans are laid. So they're just summarized in verse 9. But in essence... Moses says to Joshua, I want you to call out what troops you're going to need. And uh, I want you to lay out a, a, a battle plan, a strategy. And then I want you then to carry the fight to the Amalekites. And so there is planning that is there in place before any action is taken. And so, and so to start with, don't miss the, the vital truth that when it comes to doing any undertaking for God, planning is vital. We don't just launch and say, I'm just going to trust God, we'll see what happens. Planning is absolutely vital. You need to make sure you have the resources. You need to make sure you have the manpower, you have the volunteers, you need a clear mission, you need a coherent strategy. And so Moses instructs Joshua, lay out careful plans. Trusting the Lord and careful planning are not in conflict. The Lord uses wise, careful planning and the resources that we gather. And so Moses instructs Joshua to make careful plans, to lay it all out, to gather the troops that are needed, that sort of thing. And then Moses says, now, when you press the battle, see that little hill over there? I'm going to go up on top of that hill. And I'm going to stand on top of that hill with the rod of God in my hand. Remember, that was the rod he had thrown down in front of Pharaoh and it turned into a serpent, picked it up by the tail, turned back into a rod again. Remember that? That was the rod he held over the Red Sea uh, as the waters parted? That rod. And so he says, I'm going to stand on top of this little hill over there with the rod of God in my hand, and you're going to press the battle. And we look at that and we say, well, that's great. Uh, that's not much help, I wouldn't think. I mean, here's Joshua down in the valley, down at the base of the hill, if you will. And he's in the midst of the, the heat and the noise and the blood of battle. And Moses is standing on the hill with this rod in his hand, this staff in his hand. What does that amount to? But what we discover from this passage is Moses' uplifted rod was the key to victory. It wasn't the great battle plan that Joshua designed. He had a great battle plan. It wasn't the courage of the soldiers. They had great courage. But it was Moses' uplifted rod. Now, there's nothing magical about the rod. It's a piece of wood. It's a stick. But the significance of Moses standing on the hill in his right hand undoubtedly holding the rod and his other hand uplifted 
The, the significance of that is found in several passages of Scripture. So, for example, Psalm 28 and verse 2. The psalm writer says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. The lifting up of hands is the posture of prayer in Old Testament days. So there's Moses on top of the hill, hands uplifted. The rod of God is in his right hand. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. The apostle says, I desire then that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands. In every place, every circumstance, Paul says, the call is to pray. And so in this text, the uplifted hands of Moses... The rod in his hand, emblematic of prayer. Now, what do we discover from the text? Moses couldn't keep his arms raised very long. Just try that sometime, not during the service here. <laughs> um, I'll think we're in a Pentecostal church if you do that. But anyway, so, um, so just try that sometime. Just stand there with your arms like this. You know, have something kind of heavy in your right hand and see how long you can stand there doing that. And so what does the text say? So his arms got weary, so he put them down, and I'm sure he kind of rotated his shoulders a little bit, and it's like, okay, I think I'm ready to lift them again. But what does the text say? Whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek began to win the battle. That's significant. Whenever his hands were raised in prayer, the Israelites prevailed. So out of physical weakness, he'd have to lower his arms from time to time. And that's where Aaron and her came in. They said, tell you what, here's a rock here. Here, you sit on this rock, and one of us will stand on your right hand, one of us will stand on your left hand, and we'll hold your arms up as long as it takes to pray. And what does the Scripture say? His hands were steady until the sun went down. Talk about a lot of hours. There he was on top of that hill, Aaron on one side, her on the other side, holding his hands up as he prayed and as he interceded. Now let's think about this from a, from a spiritual standpoint. We often grow weary in prayer, don't we? It's not because we pray like this. My, my arm's getting a little tired. No, we grow weary in prayer, don't we? We lay it aside. Ah, it's burdensome, maybe we say. And we say to ourselves, you know, I know I should pray. I know I should know what the Bible says. But you know what? At least I'm working for the Lord. At least I've got the sword in my hand. At least I'm down fighting the Amalekites. That counts for something, doesn't it? You know, as a pastor, I can fall into that kind of trap as easily as you can. What I can say is, Lord, you know what? I'm not praying like I should, but, you know, I'm working really hard. I'm preparing sermons. I'm preparing Bible studies. I'm attending meetings. I'm planning. I'm counseling. I'm visiting. Well, that counts for something, doesn't it? That's one of the most destructive lies of Satan. Because what did Jesus say in John chapter 15 and verse 5? He said, without me... You can do nothing. The prophet Zechariah, what did he write? Chapter 4 and verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so understand that without a prayerful reliance on God, without a prayerful trust in Him, 
without asking for his strength, relying upon the provision of his Holy Spirit, trusting his word, all of our efforts are devoid of spiritual power. Ronald uh, Dunn, he was a Southern Baptist uh, teacher and conference speaker. He died about, uh, about 20 years ago. He wrote a very interesting book. Here's the title of it. Don't just stand there, pray something. And he tells, and, and some of you that are older than I might relate to this, he tells about a Lone Ranger episode. That was on TV in the 1950s. We didn't have a TV, I was too young. Anyway. But anyway, one of the Lone Ranger episodes from the 1950s, uh, there's the Lone Ranger, and of course he's always chasing down the bad guys, one kind or another. And so in this particular episode, he's riding with his trusty uh, sidekick Tonto, and they're galloping across this barren landscape, and they have their guns drawn, and they're pursuing the bad guys, but they've kind of gotten away, and they ride up to a Catholic mission in the episode on TV, right up to a Catholic mission. And the priest comes out. And uh, the Lone Ranger asked for information. Yes, they just went by here. Here's the way they went. He points out the direction. And the priest says, before the Lone Ranger's ready to take off, he says, I want to go with you. And the Lone Ranger says, this may be dangerous. Stay where you are. It's safe here. And the priest said, but I want to help. And the Lone Ranger says, well, then you can pray. And with a high-ho silver, off goes the Lone Ranger galloping, and Tonto is with him, and the priest turns and goes back into the mission. And Ronald Dunn says, where do you think the camera went in the episode? He said, the camera doesn't follow the priest as he goes back into the mission and goes to the chapel and kneels in prayer. Nothing to see there. But the camera follows the Lone Ranger. That's where the excitement is. That's where things happen. Uh, don't we fall into that trap? We'd rather be riding along with the Lone Ranger than kneeling beside the priest in the chapel to pray. But prayer is vital to victory. And it's interesting, this is lesson number one Joshua learns. The importance of trusting God in everything, carrying everything to God in prayer, whatever it is, trusting on His strength, His wisdom, His guidance, relying upon Him entirely. Joshua learns that as lesson number one. Have you learned that lesson? Oh, in our lives there's much activity. I have a lot of activity. You do. Busyness abounds. I don't need to tell you that. It's true for all of us. Calendar is full, yes. But do you pray? One of the things I'm immensely thankful for here at Grace is the number of people who volunteer and serve. You've heard me say this a number of times. I still am amazed at the number of people who volunteer and serve in this place. Not only the numbers, but the percentage. It's tremendously encouraging. But can I put it this way? What is most necessary is a growing number of people who will devote themselves to intercessory prayer. For mission, ministry, here and abroad, 
who will pray for volunteers, who will pray for leaders, who will intercede for a real sense of the Lord's presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's really what we need. Could we use more volunteers? Always? Sure. I'd rather have more prayers. I'd rather have more prayers. Charles Swindoll, uh, this is a book he wrote some years ago called uh, Growing Stronger in the Seasons of Life, uh, illustrates our text from Exodus 17 with this true story. I'll just read what he writes. He says, In the fall of the year, Linda, a young woman, was traveling alone up the rutted and rugged highway from Alberta to the Yukon. Linda didn't know you don't travel to Whitehorse alone in a rundown Honda Civic. So she set out where only four-wheel drives normally venture. The first evening, she found a room in the mountains near a summit and asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call so she could get an early start. She couldn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at that request, but as she awoke to early morning fog shrouding the mountaintops, she understood. Not wanting to look foolish, she got up and went to breakfast. Two truckers invited Linda to join them, and since the place was so small, she felt obliged. Where are you headed? One of the truckers asked. Whitehorse. In that little Civic? No way. This pass is dangerous in weather like this. Well, I'm determined to try was Linda's gutsy, if not very informed, response. Then, I guess, we're just going to have to hug you, the trucker suggested. Linda drew back. There's no way I'm going to let you touch me. Not like that, the truckers chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and one in the rear. In that way, we'll get you through the mountains. And then Swindoll says, all that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front and had the reassurance of the big escort behind as they made their way safely through the mountains. As you and I travel through life, how much we need prayer, how much we need somebody on each side of us, an Aaron and a her, how much we need a trucker, if you will, in front and behind us that is upholding us, encouraging us, praying for us. And not just, by the way, when it's foggy, but when the way is clear. Pray always in all circumstances at all times for all the saints, Paul says to the Ephesians. Prayer brings the power of heaven into our circumstances. Prayer brings the wisdom of God Prayer brings the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit in all things. Prayer brings victory. It's God's power at work. So can you imagine? So the day is over. The Amalekites are defeated. Can you imagine that night all the celebrating going on around the campfires? Shouting, singing, maybe late into the night, keeping little kids awake because everybody was celebrating and rejoicing. And Joshua was an instant hero. You better believe it. And so as people spoke about Joshua this, Joshua that around the campfires, Joshua wasn't swept away by any of it because he knew ultimately he had nothing to do with the victory. Because in his mind, 
And I wonder how many times in the midst of the battle he glanced off either to his right and left and saw that little hill and saw Moses there with hands uplifted in prayer interceding. That was burned into his mind, that image of Moses on that hill under that blazing sun, hands lifted up to God in prayer until the victory was won. Let me close with this poem. It's, it's a poem simply entitled, The Difference. And it comes from the words of Jesus who said, Ask, you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. The poem goes like this. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't have time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me? I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, you didn't seek. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, why child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Prayer is indispensable. Victory comes in prayer. Power comes through prayer. Guidance comes through prayer. Wisdom comes through prayer. We're calling upon the one who is the Lord, our banner. He is the one who gives victory. Don't miss that here in the text. And so my encouraging word to you this morning is, whatever it is that is against you, whatever the enemy might be, whoever the Amalekites are, if you will, in your life, there is power and victory for each of you as in prayer you rally around the Lord, our banner. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we'd rather be doing stuff. We're, all of us, especially us as men, I suppose, we're project-oriented. Give me a task, give me something to make, fix, build, whatever it is, oh, I'm ready to go. To pray? Yeah, I know I should. But, but Lord, teach us this lesson that Joshua needed to learn, this lesson of prayer, of reliance completely upon you. Lord, make us increasingly a praying church, uh, praying in our own lives, uh, praying together with fellow believers, lifting our hearts to you, our burdens, our needs, yes, and our joys and our praises and our thanksgiving. Lord, as we continue on in this ministry year, we thank you for the many ministries you've raised up. Thank you for the planning that has gone in, the organizing that has gone in, uh, the troops are gathered, so to speak, but how we need power, how we need the power of your Holy Spirit. And so send that power upon us, stir us, Lord, individually and then collectively to be a praying people. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.